You're listening to the North Peace Roundtable Podcast, your weekly podcast about theology and the Christian life. All right, well, episode 122. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the North Peace Roundtable Podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I am alone today. <laughs> uh, usually I say, uh, with me as always, is Cameron, but Cameron is down in Vancouver this week uh, with his wife for some appointments. So uh, I'm just going to record by myself today. Uh, the reason being is we've we've had a few questions come in, and I thought, well, I can uh, at least attempt to answer these questions. And so it might be a bit of a shorter episode, but that's okay. Uh, I want to answer some questions that people have sent in. So uh, yeah. Hopefully you're doing well, and if you're new to the podcast, usually uh, it's not just me talking, so hopefully next week we can get back to the usual way we do things, but uh, so two questions I have uh, that someone uh, asked me in the last couple of weeks. So the first question was uh, one that I had never heard before. Someone asked me, uh, where where did the phrase rest in peace come from? So if you think about, um, you know, sometimes uh, at funerals or, you know, we see things online if, if uh, someone's passed away, um, a lot of times if you like write a post about, oh, so-and-so passed away, they'll end it with, you know, RIP or rest in peace. And so someone asked me, uh, where did that phrase come from? And is it like a, is it a Christian thing to say? As Christians, should we be saying it? What does it mean when we're like saying about a dead person, you know, rest in peace? So it's a really good question and one that I uh, have never actually thought of. I don't say that phrase when I, you know, I'm comforting a, a family that's lost a loved one or I've never actually said rest in peace at a funeral or things like that. But you listening, maybe you have, maybe you've, you know, tried to encourage someone by saying rest in peace or, or something like that. So... Uh, I did some digging and some research about it because uh, it was a good question. I'm like, I have no idea when this phrase started. So it's actually, it comes from a Latin phrase, which I'm not going to say in Latin. It's like requiescat in passe. That's probably terrible Latin. But uh, it began appearing on Christian gravestones in the 8th century as people like kind of looked back, you know, where did this phrase come from? So in the 700s, um, there are some gravestones that had that phrase in Latin, rest in peace, on them. Uh, and it became really, really widespread, really popular uh, to to put on a, a gravestone or a headstone or something like that in the 18th century, so in the 1700s. Um, and so that's kind of the the historical background. Uh, we see some evidence in the 8th century, more so in the 18th century. Um, but even today, um, there's different, you know, Christian traditions that use that, more so Catholic or Lutheran. Um, but there are uh, other Christian traditions that use that. But then the... Uh, The question is then, though, like, what does it mean, right? Okay, so we started, people started using it a long time ago, more so, you know, 300 years ago, it was used a lot. But what does it mean? Um, It's originally meant to be a prayer. Um, 
it's it was used at a lot of wakes and funerals and it was basically a a a prayer um wishing that those who died the person that had died that they had found right standing with God and now they were resting eternally with him so basically there's an issue with that right because we're praying for this dead person um which biblically I don't think we're ever told to pray for a dead person uh, because their fate is is already kind of sealed uh, the moment they die. Um, so there's there's an issue with that, I guess. Um, and the the expression that phrase "rest in peace" is never once used in the in the Bible in connection to like someone uh, who had died. The closest we get in um, in Daniel twelve. Uh, verse 13, there's an angel who's speaking about Daniel's death that's going to happen. And the angel says, basically, you will rest. Um, so there's, okay, there's an, there's a connection to Daniel dying and that being kind of equated to he'll, he'll finally have rest. And then <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 57 verse 2 says, those who walk uprightly enter into peace they find rest as they lie in death. So there again, there's this kind of connection to ah, once you die, the you know there's rest for the the person that has died. Um, another translation in of Isaiah 57 says, um, he enters into peace. They rest in their beds. Each one has wa- who walked in his upright way. So it's like almost there's this relief that comes with death for the follower of Jesus because we're not in this battle against sin anymore and we're in the presence of Jesus and we can rest now. So I I get that. Um, But I think sometimes that phrase like rest in peace is used um, as trying to help uh, people grieve so if you think about it, uh, we use lots of phrases like that, right? Oh, they're in a better place, or um, that's one that I, I hear lots, right? Someone dies, okay, well they're in there, they're in a better place. Even um, people who aren't followers of Jesus say that kind of thing when they die. Oh, well they're not suffering anymore; they're in a better place. You know, rest in peace. Which, if you're not a follower of Jesus, none of those statements are actually true. Um, because if you haven't expressed faith in Jesus, the moment that you die, you're not in peace. Um, you're actually, uh, uh, just to be blunt, you are in hell. Um, you're not, you're in suffering. You're not with Jesus. So we can't just make a blanket statement and any individual who dies, oh, well, they're, they're at rest now. They're in, they're in peace because that's just not true. However, though, for a follower of Jesus, death is different, right? First um, Thessalonians 4.13 tells us, even for us who are grieving, it's natural for us to grieve when someone dies, but we don't, we don't grieve as people who have no hope, right? Because we know that we're going to see that individual again, because they've trusted in Jesus and we trust in Jesus. So death is not the, the end for us. Um, Paul even talks about death. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body, meaning like dying, is to be present with the Lord. So it's like for a follower of Jesus, the moment they die, 
um, they're in the presence of Jesus. Um, the Bible calls this paradise, right? If you think of uh, in Luke 23, when um, Jesus is on the cross and the thief is there and uh, Jesus says, today, you know, you'll be with me in paradise. So the moment that that thief died on the cross, uh, he was with Jesus in paradise in eternal rest. So on one hand, I get the phrase, right, that uh, for if you're a follower of Jesus and you die, you, you are at rest. Um, your struggle with sin and your sinful nature and this broken world is over. Um, you are resting in the presence of Jesus. Totally, I get that. Uh, and you're you have peace finally. Um, I just think it's a it's a phrase that I probably wouldn't use because it's been used as a prayer that we're like praying for this dead person to rest in peace. Um, and the Bible never suggests that we should pray for uh, dead people. That's kind of rooted in Catholic tradition, not in the Bible. Um, so, you know, if we could say, uh, you know, if a follower of Jesus dies, are they at rest now? Uh, do they have peace? Yeah, totally. Um, but we're not like praying them into heaven. We're not saying a prayer on their behalf because their fate is already sealed. Once they die, they're either with Jesus or they're not. So uh, as a as a phrase, I don't, again, I don't think it's sinful for a Christian to use that phrase, but it can just be misleading, right? Um, especially if we use it for um, unbelievers because it's actually not true that they are resting and they're at peace and they're with Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, um, you are uh, away from the presence of Jesus. You're in a bad place. So I, I think even online, right, as we're trying to comfort people who maybe have lost a loved one or it's an anniversary of a, uh, a loved one's death, which I think that's where this question came from, it can be misleading to be like, oh, well, you know, we're thinking about John. This is a random example. Uh, who died last year, you know, rest in peace, John. Um, I think that's just super misleading because one, we're not praying about dead people. And um, if they're not a follower of Jesus, then they're not resting and they're not at peace. So I would just, I would use different phrases, right? Uh, if if you're thinking about the anniversary of a, a loved one that passed away, right? Share a memory about them or, you know, share a word of comfort for the person who's grieving, but don't give people false hope by using just kind of, you know, colloquial, colloquial phrases that we use and just kind of toss around, uh, haphazardly. So, uh, I don't know. I think we can just be wiser with the words that we use. So, that's kind of the history of uh, where that phrase came from. And um, yeah, I would just use caution as we use it because we don't want to send uh, the wrong message to people and say things that aren't true, if that makes sense. So uh, yeah, great question that I've actually never thought of because I never use that phrase. All right, the second question um, that we had was if you have been attending church here at North Peace for the last while. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. Nope. The book of 1 Corinthians. 
And especially the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at chapters 12, 13, and 14, where Paul is addressing spiritual gifts, and specifically, he's talking about the gift of speaking in tongues and prophecy. Um, And I made a statement uh, a few weeks ago and this last Sunday about the gift of prophecy. So I'll just quickly recap it, and then I'll get to the question. But basically, I think um, we've seen the gift of prophecy abused. Um, and in lots of modern North American churches, it's this idea of like, well, I am a prophet, uh, same as prophets in the Bible. Uh, you know, I ha- I am, I, I, ho- I hold the position of prophet. And then because of that, <clears throat> I can say things like, thus saith the Lord. And now I'm speaking directly on God's behalf. And uh, I've kind of shared my viewpoint of the gift of prophecy that actually the office of prophet no longer exists. No one can stand up and say, I am a prophet of God, thus saith the Lord. I'll give you an example. So when COVID was happening, Kenneth Copeland, who is uh, uh, just a terrible false teacher, uh, he stood up and he said he made this you know, declaration about COVID being over and he said, you know, standing in the office of the prophet of God. So he was saying, right, I'm a prophet on the same level as Elijah, Elisha, all the prophets in the Bible. I am a prophet and I am declaring to you that COVID is over. And then, of course, you will you know that COVID exists, is, you know, kept going for another year or two. And so he was wrong. But he kind of made that statement. I am standing in the in the office of the prophet of God. Um, I don't think that that exists anymore. There are no prophets, capital P prophets, and the gift of prophecy is not equal to the Old Testament or even the New Testament role of prophet. Uh, and I made the statement, you know, Hebrews 1 says that uh, long ago in many times and in many ways, uh, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. So Jesus was the final uh, <clears throat> he is the final prophet. He has fulfilled that role and uh, we don't need prophets anymore. But then someone asked me, and this is where the question comes from, well, what about the prophet Agabus in the book of Acts? So um, there's there's two spots that talk about this prophet named Agabus. In Acts 11, verses 27 to 30, it says this, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined according to their ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So you have this uh, prophet named Agabus who stands up and he prophesies that there's going to be this uh, great famine. And then it happens. And then in Acts 21, uh, he's mentioned again, and he says this, uh, it says, well, we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So uh, Agabus comes and he makes this Uh, prophecy. And he says, right, thus says the Holy Spirit. And he ties Paul's hands with his belt and says, like, 
this is how you're going to be treated when you uh, come to the city that you're going to. So someone asked like, well, so you said, <coughs> excuse me, um, that there's no prophets anymore. And yet in the book of Acts, you have this guy, Agabus, who's a prophet and, and seems to be acting like the prophets of the Old Testament. So how do you make sense of that? Which is a really good question. So this is what I'll say. Um, the book of Acts is describing things uh, that took place before the rest of the Bible was written. So the book of Hebrews was written after the book of Acts. Uh, and, and so the book of Acts is describing this incredible transition time between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? So in the in the old covenant before Jesus, the Holy Spirit was not given to everybody. The Holy Spirit would come upon someone for a specific task, or uh, it would come upon the prophets to prophesy things. Uh, and yet followers of God did not have the Holy Spirit in them. And then Jesus comes and he does what he's, he came to do. He dies. He's raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. The early church, 120 people are waiting because Jesus um, told them to wait. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and fills the followers of Jesus. And they speak in languages and the church is born and 3,000 people believe. And so you have this incredible transition time between the old covenant and the new covenant when the church is starting and the Holy Spirit is uh, dwelling in believers. This had never happened before in the history of the world. So it was this kind of incredible time in the early church. And uh, in Ephesians 2.20, you read that, uh, actually, I'll just read it. Let me just flip in my Bible. Uh, Paul's talking about the church and he's, he's, he says this um, in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the church, right? Uh, then he says this in verse 20. Built, here's what the church is built on. On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So uh, as the church is built, what? What is the foundation that is being laid? Because there is no New Testament yet. Remember that. The New Testament the comes about 100 uh, AD. So the, the for 60-something years, the church doesn't have a Bible. The church has the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. They have letters that are being written by apostles. But around 100 AD is the, the last... Uh, book is written, Revelation, and it's kind of being compiled together. So what would be the foundation for the early church? It would be the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. So Agabus standing up and and saying that he's a prophet and giving a word from God, there's no issue there because uh, there was this massive transition time for about 70 years. The Holy Spirit is given. The church has has started. The apostles and the prophets are teaching theology. What is the message from God? What do we believe? Who is Jesus? And they're compiling all of these things. And, and so there were prophets in the Old Testament. And then the book of Hebrews is written. And the author of Hebrews says, uh, actually, God doesn't speak through uh, capital P, the office of prophets anymore. He's, he's spoken to us through his son. 
And now we have the New Testament. We have all of the writings of the apostles that are inspired by God and are the things that teach us. We don't need prophets anymore. So hopefully that makes sense because I know there was a little bit of confusion. It was like, okay, Andrew, you said there's no more prophets, but you read the book of Acts and there are prophets. And I'm like, yeah, totally. I don't, there's not a contradiction there. Uh, the early church um, had prophets because it didn't have a Bible and the foundation of the church was being laid. And Ephesians 2.20 says the foundation is Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets teaching lays the foundation. But even as you build a house, <clears throat> you lay a foundation once, right? As you're building, uh, I've talked to builders you don't lay a foundation and then build a bit and then go, well, actually, let's lay, a, let's lay another foundation on top of the stuff we've already built. That doesn't make any sense. You lay a foundation once and then the whole structure is built on the foundation. So that's Paul's point in Ephesians. The foundation of the church was laid once and it was laid by apostles and prophets. And now the church is being built on that foundation. So we don't need apostles and prophets anymore. So... Uh, it can be confusing. I don't know when you read the New Testament and, and you have to understand that the the book of Acts is just laying out, here's the history of the early church. It's not, um, it's n it's not prescriptive. It's not saying, ah, see the uh, Acts 21 describes a prophet. Therefore, there should always be prophets. No, the book of Acts is descriptive. It's saying, this is the history of how it happened. Isn't this amazing? So you supplement, right, the book of Acts with all the rest of the writings of the New Testament where it says Jesus is the final prophet. We don't need other prophets. And apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. Uh, we don't need more. And, and so that just is a, is a tip for how you read the book of Acts. It's not prescriptive saying that this is how the church must always operate. It's descriptive saying this is how it began. Isn't this amazing? Praise God. So uh, I still think, uh, I stand by what I said on Sundays, uh, there are no prophets anymore. However, there were in the, uh, the early church because they were foundational uh, to the beginning of the church. So um, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, I know it's only been a short little episode, 22 minutes, but uh, that's what happens when I don't have anyone to talk to. <laughs> uh, so hopefully that's been helpful to you. Uh, uh, or at least interesting, maybe answered some questions you had. Um, as always, uh, if you have uh, other questions that come up or things that you're wondering as you read the Bible or hear sermons or whatever, uh, always send them our way. Uh, next week we'll have Cam back and uh, it'll be a better episode for sure. But uh, yeah, send us questions you have. You can email me, andrew at npnbchurch.com or um, yeah, send us a message on Facebook or whatever. And uh, we'd love to keep answering questions you have. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week.